Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today I am thrilled to say we are joined by Senator Barbara Boxer. Senator Boxer served in the House of Representatives from 1983 to 1993 and in the U.S. Senate as the Senator from California from 1993 to 2017. She is the author of books of fiction and nonfiction, including The Art of Tough. This is a perfect introduction to how tough do you have to be? (laughs) Very. And there's no question. And, um, you know, in my book, I talk about the nine rules of the art of tough. And, and, And I'm sure you've gone through it too. But in my generation, it was really, really rough because when I started running for office, hardly any women did. And when they did, people would say, oh, you must have an unhappy marriage, or you must be a lesbian, or you're neglecting your children. So we've come a little bit of a ways away from that. But you have to be able to focus and believe in yourself. You have to stand up when people try to shut you up. And you know there are lots of things you need, what I call inner applause, meaning when people are jumping all over you and telling you to quit, which I've had more than once happen, you have to hear that people are cheering for you, people that matter to you, whether it's your parents or your friends or your family or your constituents who did vote for you. So there's lots of tricks of the trade to beat it. But believe me when I tell you, it it is rough out there. Was there one moment that you look back and think, I almost just said, okay, enough, I'm going to transition <laughs> back into fill in the blank? Well, not really. I'm I'm so tough. I stood up all the time. But the one time I got a little demoralized was when I first ran for office. This was before I was a member of the House in 83. Um, I ran for the Board of Supervisors in 1972. It was a Nixon landslide. I was running as a Democrat, and I, I lost a close race. And during that period of time, and that's the toughest thing to lose. You know what I mean? It's tough. But you have to accept it. Message to Donald Trump. But um, <laughs> we'll get I, there. Yes. When I when I ran, I'd knock on the doors and people would respond. And one woman said, "I'll never forget it." She said, "Who is it?" And I said, "It's Barbara Boxer. I'm running for supervisor." And she opens the door, and the first thing she says is, "I didn't think you'd be so short." And I said, "What?" I said, this is how I've been since eighth grade. I didn't grow after eighth grade. I'm just five feet. And then she said, but there's really something serious and a reason that I I can't vote for you. And I said, well, what is it? She said, you're neglecting your four children. And I said, I don't have four children. I have two (laughs) children. I have two children. To which she said, no, you don't. And she's arguing with me about how many children I have. And finally realizing I couldn't get this woman's vote if I had saved her life from a flaming household, I said to her, look, I don't know if you've ever had kids, but it's something you don't forget. And I only did it twice. And I walked away. That was a moment that I thought, is this really worth it that I have to tell people that I only have two kids, not four kids, because she read it somewhere. But it's uh, unbelievable. This is like the early campaign disinformation that you encountered years and years That is, I really don't know what to say to the idea that you would be arguing with a perfect stranger about how many children you have. And frankly, whether that matters for your fitness for office, right? I mean, that's the big here, which is that's up to you how you want to raise your children. And I doubt people 
were asking your husband. Uh, no, I want to point this out. The guy I was running against, okay, follow this. It's a part-time job, member of the Board of Supervisors, okay, in Marin County. So you're one of five people. So the guy who I was running against was an incumbent. So he was married. Uh, his wife was wonderful. She worked. They had two kids, okay, and he had a full-time job. I never even had a full-time This was going to be all I did. So the, the, there was no level playing field. There was no way. So I would often say, look, my opponent has a full-time job. He has two kids. And people just shrugged their shoulders. I mean, that was the 70s. But my, I, did, I did do something important. I ran again and won, you know. And that was, that's in the art of tough. That's in my book. You cannot give up because you may lose once because you're a little ahead of your time or there's some prejudice out there, um, whatever it is, you have to at least try a second time. And I did, and I got elected, and then I won, you know, like 24 straight elections if you count the primaries and the general elections. But losing, it's a weird thing to say, but it was character building. It's, it's not being Pollyannish. It's You really have to deal with it. And if you can't lose with losing in politics, find another field because you always have a 50% chance. You really do that you may not make it. And you have to be able to withstand it because really when all is said and done, you say, hmm, they like the other person better than they like me. So you got to deal with that. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult. When I get back to school and I get back to teaching, I'm going to send you a picture of my bookcase because I actually do have that book on my oh, bookshelf. Good. And I will oh, prove good. that I, I not only knew that you wrote it, but actually read it. And there, <laughs> there are a lot of character building moments. And um, yeah. I want to fast forward a little bit to when you're in the Senate because a very small percentage of the population, very, very small, will ever be able to serve. Yeah, in the Senate. And first, a, a broad question before we get to some of the news of the day, shall we say, which is, if there's one thing you could change about the institution of the Senate, if there was one thing where you said, I wish we had structured it in a different way, mm -hmm. or I wish we did this in a different way, what would it be? I think it would be great if we had one day a week, a bipartisan lunch. Because mm. we do our separate lunches, and they're very important because they're really work lunches. They're not fun. I mean, you're just talking about what's on the floor of the Senate, what do you think is going well, what ideas do you have, and it's very important. But you should do that, but you should also have a bipartisan lunch, because I think we're just too much in our corners. And, you know, in the very old days, everybody, and that was before my time even, most people lived in D.C. They didn't commute home. Today, so many people commute home, so there's really no way to get to know your colleagues at a different level as there used to be. Um, and, and I think it would help. Look, it doesn't change your view necessarily, but it just becomes a more civil place and a chance that you can find a sweet spot in legislation, which is what you have to do in order to or get anything done in the Senate. It's not like the House, which is more a parliamentary institution, as you know. Um, it's very different. And you do need, at this time, for legislation, 60 votes to pass it. 
Yeah. I mean, isn't this true of so many things in life where if you actually know people, then you tend to be able to get along with them. And as you said, find that, or if you don't get along, at least you can see people not as the enemy. Yeah. Now I I do want to make a point. I'm, I'm not saying that we see each other as enemies. Really, we don't. I mean, the Senate isn't like that. It's very small. The House is 435 people. And I got out of there, frankly, because of Newt Gingrich, who had such a negative tone. I, I write a lot about that. It was really awful. He was trying to paint Democrats as if we were traitors to the country and use language to uh, really, really paint us in a terrible light. And I just, I couldn't take it. I thought it was just beneath the dignity of the House of Representatives. And even though it's an ordinary bunch, but it became so mean-spirited I said to my husband, look, I've been here 10 years. I want to go for the Senate. And he basically said, look, what are your chances of winning? I said, slim to none. And we started laughing. We said, okay, what's the worst that happens? I'll come home. But, you know, I I managed to make it. It was, (laughs) I never, out of the four times I ran for Senate, only one I was favored to win. The other three times I was favored to lose. (laughs) It's crazy. I remember that. I remember that was the first race that I really followed as a young person interested in politics. That was a big one. Yeah. The year of the woman, they called it. 1992. We've had as many year of the woman as we have had trials of the century, it seems, in some way. (laughs) Well, here's what's so very funny about that. That was the biggest overstatement in America. They said, it's the year of the woman. The numbers in the Senate tripled. That's true. We went from two to six. Yeah. And we had six women and 94 men. And they said it was the year of the woman. Uh, but it is true. Senator Feinstein and I became the first two women ever elected from one state. That was a big thing. It's wonderful to make history that way. And now there are several states that have two women. It does personally just make me crazy whenever we say the year of the woman or yeah. what enormous gains for women. And then you see that women are 18% of the Senate yeah. or 22% of Congress, or I'm throwing out numbers, yeah. but they're no. not completely they're off. about 25%. And that's about it. And that's wrong. Really, to be honest, I don't agree with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It should be 100%. Really, I don't. But it should be 50%. That's that. In other words, if you have a House of Representative that's representative, then you have to have everybody represented in their numbers, at least close to it. And in Europe, they can do the parliamentary system where they put people on a list and that's how you get elected. This, you have to go out and fight for it. And we didn't even get the vote, for God's sakes, till 1920. So it's taken us a long time. This is going to seem like a really obvious question. Why is it important to have women who are about 50% of our representatives. Mm -hmm. If we have men who are making, quote unquote, good policy decisions, Mm -hmm. why does it matter? Okay. Well, I'll give you, I won't talk in rhetoric. I'll just give you an example of that. When I got to the House of Representatives in the 80s, we found out that in clinical trials for different drugs, like they, I remember they were testing to see if baby aspirin would help your heart. So In clinical trials, they never had women, and I mean never. It was all done for men who were about 155 pounds. That was it. And 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 no and nobody spoke up about it until we we got there. We we 
there were only 28 women when I got there out of 435. And we had this real burden of representing everybody. And we, we didn't even know this was the case in clinical trials at the NIH. And so we changed that immediately. And, and then I found out when I, cause I was always an environmentalist that the, the water quality standards were set to protect men of 155 pounds or more, not sick people, not smaller people like women, not children. So we changed that. I, I had a bill to change that to protect children. And when you protect children, you protect everybody. So this is why you're sitting around a table talking about breast cancer, okay, which we have to find a cure for. And there's very few women around the table. That subject may not even come up. It's not that men are bad and women are better, it's, I mean, you have to have representative sample of people. That's why you need people of color. We're finally seeing that happen. This is very, very, very important because we can all, you know, uh, try to walk in each other's shoes, which I believe in, but you cannot, no one understands the experience that I just told you about. I mean, unless you had it where somebody says, you know, you're neglecting your four children and you're arguing with them about how many children you have. That That's prejudice. And people have to be able to sit around the table and tell their story. This whole COVID thing is hitting people of color like a brick, harder than anybody else. If they're not sitting around the table when we get a COVID relief package, we're missing something. It's such a good and concrete point. And I don't know how you feel about this, but I always feel uncomfortable when people talk about women's issues. Mm-hmm. And certainly there are some issues that do disproportionately fall to women, but some of those issues are only because of our systemic gender inequality. It shouldn't mm-hmm. be that things like education and healthcare are, you know, quote unquote, women's issues. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Every issue is important to women and men. And it's, it's silly. I don't even understand it. The only thing I could say is that in many cases, women will have different pressures in their lives, different responsibilities in their lives. They're certainly treated unequally in the workplace. So there is something to be said for, um, you know, looking at certain things that impact women more. But everything is a, a women's issue. Whether you go to war is a woman's issue. As a matter of fact, when we got the vote, Woodrow Wilson promised us the vote. And then he said to the suffragettes, who he, he jailed them, you know, he said to them, uh, you know, I can't do this now because we have World War I going on. And the women said, well, we're the mothers, you know, we're the grandmothers, we're the sisters of those who are going to war. We want the vote and eventually got the vote. But yeah, it's all important. Every issue is important to everybody. And you just need diversity around the table on every issue, whatever it may be. And we know from every study, every credible study, that you get better policy outcomes when people have a diversity of viewpoints and a diversity of experiences. And there is just no way of navigating the world as a woman or a person of color unless you are one. And I completely agree with you. There's no better way to marginalize issues than to describe them as women's issues. Yeah, or as they're issues. important to everyone. The most important thing is to have everybody around the table, as you said. Let's just take um, this nightmare of the uh, of police brutality that's hitting the black community. I'm trying to walk another mom and grandma's shoes 
to understand what it must be like to look at your your uh, African American grandson or son and and pray to God that they come back at night because they're in such a precarious position. But how do you cure the problem? Everybody sitting around the table can't look like everybody else. We all have to work together. So it's my issue, it's your issue, but the people who are getting the brunt of the problem have to be at the table. Or it's, you're not going to have a representative government. I guess that's the point I want to make. You know, when Benjamin Franklin said, I'm giving you a republic if you can keep it. I mean, it's a, it's a representative democracy. We don't vote except in California where we have propositions. We don't vote on issues. We send people to Washington to vote on issues for us. So if they don't look like America, here's what happens. People feel disenfranchised. I can't tell you how many times when I got to the house, there were so few women before. And when I got there, and hardly any that got there in their own right, most of them got there because their husbands died and they were, you know, got elected for a brief period. But I'm telling you, it was so bad. And I can't tell you how many letters I got from girls and women all over the country saying, thank God you and the other women got elected because we never heard any discussion really about childcare or birth control or, you know, the fact that we're earning 75 cents for every dollar earned by a man we, and, and, and how we need attention uh, to our situation. And it was really a, an eye-opener. That shouldn't be the case. We should have a representative democracy so that everybody doesn't have to write to somebody else's congresswoman or senator but they feel that their story is being told and being addressed. It's essential. Otherwise, you have a very angry populace that doesn't feel that they're being representative in any way, shape, or form, and that's not healthy. And we know that that leads to a whole cycle of discontent, and then people check out of our representative process. And, that's right. And then we end up having representatives who are voted in from a very small sliver of the electorate. This is an unfairly broad question, but how can we get to something closer to parity when it comes to representation of gender, when it comes to racial representation? Well, people have to run. You can't, you know, you got to play by the rules. You have to be tough. You got to be ready to take it, uh, take your views to the people. And um, I will say this, Honestly, I think you have a very good shot now to do it. In my day, it was very hard. There was so much prejudice. And, you know, I, uh, I had an economics degree and people couldn't believe it. Oh, my God, a woman who understands economics. Yeah, a lot of us are out there with degrees in political science. We're lawyers, we're doctors, we're everything. Um, but, you know, I just say, the time is now to do it. There are many more women getting elected on both sides of the aisle. Finally, the Republicans put up a few. Um, but it's, it's, it's really up to people to do it. I'll tell you one thing about the work. It's very exciting. It's very rewarding. And you're treated equally because as a United States senator, man, woman, let me tell you something, you're equal. You can shut down the place. You know, you can insist on yeah. votes. You could do... So, and you get the same pay. I mean, it's, it, it's a profession that's, that really uh, will make you feel you're equal to the men and you have enough power to fight for the things you want. So I just say, 
there's no reason for people to hide in the shadows. You have a good chance. And today, I think people want to see women. I mean, they, there's advantages. Particularly in the current climate, it's two weeks now past Election Day. President Trump has not conceded. Of course, constitutionally, we don't need him to concede. But this seems to be an example of something we've seen for the last four years, which is the Senate and establishment Republicans in the Senate, I should say, have not acted like a guardrail. Mm-hmm. There ha- it seems to me that they have actually given in to his worst impulses. Is that also what you've observed? And do you think this is an aberration? Can we be hopeful for how the Senate will behave under uh, President Biden? Here's what I think. We do have more and more senators speaking out and saying, for goodness sakes, give Joe Biden a briefing here, you know, on uh, intelligence issues. I assume they'll they include in that COVID, which is a security, a national security issue when so many people are dying. It's unbelievable. So you do have a few speaking up. But here's the deal. This election was a very odd election. Um, Joe Biden won by a lot. This is not a close election. And if you go by Donald Trump's analysis, it's a landslide. Not only did he get over 300 electoral votes, but he also, I think he's going to wind up 6 million or so, or maybe more ahead of Trump. But what happened in the Senate is was kind of surprising because the polls were telling us that Democrats would probably take back the Senate. It didn't happen, but it could could happen in Georgia. So the first way to answer you is depends on what happens in Georgia. Yeah. If we if we have a 50-50, that means Kamala Harris, the vice president, breaks the tie, Democrats will control the Senate and will get more done. The other option is for Joe to do what he does best, which is to reach across the aisle. He does that very well. And, you know, have public opinion on his side. And if he can't move uh, legislation, he's going to have to go for the um, executive orders on a scale that Trump did. And I don't think he'll be afraid to do that. But I think, you know, Trump, Trumpism was not defeated. Okay. Donald Trump was defeated. Right. But because he has this following, so many people came out. We had a blue wave and we had a huge turnout for Trump. And so it, the House. Democrats lost ground. The Senate, we gained a little ground, but we'll see what happens in Georgia. And I think it calls for someone like Joe, even if we do win both seats in Georgia, he's Joe's still going to have to reach across the aisle. And I think he'll get a few people because they love him. Everyone says there is no finer, nicer, kinder, more empathetic human being. And that isn't just in his political life, but also the way he treats colleagues. This was something I was going to ask you about, but since our time is coming to an end, a quick lightning round uh, (laughs) of our last three questions, because we learned a lot from you. A little bit more about you. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you like to invite to a dinner party? (gasps) Jackie Robinson. You're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? (laughs) Toasted jelly. Ooh, uh, so, bad. so bad, Senator Boxer. So boring. It's so boring. I'm so I can't. The depths of my disappointment are <laughs> I cannot explain right now. Well, here's a reason for it. But there's a reason because 
if I'm stranded on a desert island, I am nervous. I do not want a big meal. My stomach would not handle it. So that's why. Not only 100% redeemed, but I feel incredibly seen right now. Uh, you get one, last one, you get one superpower for an hour. One superpower. Oh my gosh. If I really had that power, I would go back to pre-COVID, go back there and be ready when it came. You can find Senator Boxer on Twitter at Barbara Boxer, all one word. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast at Past Judgment Pod. If this is your first episode of Passing Judgment, welcome. If you are already a loyal listener, thank you so much for your continued support. You can find us on every streaming platform. We would love to get more ratings and reviews. We so appreciate it. In the meantime, be well, everyone, and we will see you next time.